Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation and a senior editor at New Lines Magazine. Today, I'm joined by Viktor Kovalenko. He is a former Ukrainian journalist, as well as a veteran from the Ukrainian military. He served uh, in the war in 2014 and 15. He now lives in Detroit, Michigan in our neck of the woods. Uh, and Victor has been a, an indispensable resource on social media, certainly since the outbreak of, or I should say the Russian invasion, February 24th, in compiling some of the most crucial data and uh, insights about Ukrainian politics. Most recently, I reached out to him for this show because he'd done a very insightful thread on the recent sackings by the Zelensky administration of the head of the SBU and now the uh, prosecutor general allegations that seem to suggest that they were remiss or incompetent in rooting out treachery, fifth columnist activity, Russian agents in the midst of the security services, and perhaps even um, what amounts to the Ukrainian version of the Department of Justice. So, Victor, it's great to have you on. Thanks for, for making the time. Thank you, Michael, for an invitation. Yeah, absolutely. And let, why don't we begin with you know the recent uh, firings of I mean, it's to be clear that the SBU or now the former SBU chief, Ivan Bakanov, is, is not just a normal official. I mean, he's a childhood friend of President Zelensky. And it seems sort of many people would have would have said and indeed did say that it, he should never have been appointed to his role in the first place. But given his closeness to the president, uh, his termination coming as it does month five into a war for Ukraine's existence seems provocative and um, eyebrow raising. I mean, what, what can you tell us about uh, Bakanov and also uh, the allegations, in, at least by the, the government, that, that he had failed in his, in his job? I mean, one of the things that struck me as rather interesting, you know, covering Ukraine since 2014, the SBU is, is the notorious service in the country. And clearly there were instances going back to, you know, the, the takeover of Crimea and the outbreak of war in Donbass in, in that period of SBU officers who were completely controlled by the Russian security services. And yet, as of this February, with the the exception of, I guess, Kherson, where there were people who were basically switched sides or, or had been working for Moscow all along, you didn't really see too many accusations of double crossing and you know penetration of the services. So what can you tell us about uh, Bakanov and where he is said to have fallen down in his job? Yes. Before we start this, uh, to discuss this topic, I would like to emphasize that in comparison to Western countries, uh, political culture in Ukraine is different. I mean that it is much more often leaders and rulers and bosses, they appoint their friends, their childhood friends. And the main reasons here is because they trust them. You know, it's, I understand the logic of Zelensky, when he came into power, he was elected. And let's take, talk honestly, he didn't have uh, a team behind him before. So his team was this comedy show and people he trusted in his comedy show. He managed his company. His first idea was to start appointing uh, people whom he trusts to the key positions. And Ivan Bakanov, the chief of the SBU service, he was one of them. He appointed many of his friends. Yeah, and it's uh, significant that this um, dismissal of Ivan Bakanov. He dismissed the last his friend from the top position. So we we can uh, start talking about the new era for Zelensky when he is completely over, uh, made the overhaul of the of the government and removed his friends. What was the major fault of Bakanov? First of all, he was not prepared for this job. He never had the experience in um, law enforcement, in judicial uh, and other stuff. 
that's the major issue. He was not experienced. So when he entered this unreformed SBU, SBU was not reformed after the independence of Soviet of Ukraine, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. It should be done in the early 90s. This service should be completely uh, reformed and all staff with the traces and routes to Moscow, to Russia, they should be gradually removed and replaced with the new generations of people who were grown and get education in the West or in Ukraine. But no president did it, unfortunately. So Zelensky right now is trying to do it on the go. He has a war, he has an attack of his country, and he suddenly realizes that this is so much important. The SBU is a is a prototype of CIA and FSB and the Secret Service all together. Yeah. This is the monster. This is the actual monster. It should be reformed because you cannot have investigations. You cannot uh, investigate criminal activities and also defend the security of the country. So this monster functions not so well. And reforms are long due to in this service. What was the last drop for the removal of Bakanov? It was that detention of the Russian mall, Russian spy, who was the director of the directorate for the Kherson uh, province. Mister, um, I don't, uh, I cannot remember his his surname right now. But uh, anyway, so I'm talking about this important Kherson region. In the early weeks of the invasion in February, Russia occupied this region so easily yeah. because a lot of security uh, personnel of SBU in that region, they switched sides easily and they started helping Russian army to occupy the region. Right. It was a major treason. It was like massive treason. And uh, how Bakanov could allow this to happen, how he managed the preparations for the war, that was a big question. And I, well, I think... Isn't, isn't another issue too that there didn't seem to be many preparations for the war? I mean, I was in, I was in Kiev in January a lot of Ukrainians felt, you know, the ones that were nervous and, and thought that there was going to be some kind of escalation, if not a, a full-scale invasion and, and assault on Kiev, were, were very critical of Zelensky for not preparing the population for something big, right? So is another allegation against Bakanov that he simply failed to forget about rooting out spies and traitors. He, he simply pre- failed to make the SBU, you know, to sort of lay the groundwork for what it was going to have to do in the event of a Russian assault. This is my big concern as well. I also saw that Ukraine was not going to be prepared for the invasion anytime seriously. So for many months, U.S. intelligence warned uh, many times uh, that the invasion is coming, that uh, Putin will invade. And it was obvious that at least uh, they should protect the capital region like block posts and road posts and building trenches and building lines of defense, but nothing was done. And especially that connection to the Crimea and Kherson provinces, it was not blocked at all. So the civilians were allowed to come in and out. And it was like ordinary, just a road movement. Instead, they should be, Ukraine should shut down the border at all, having this intelligence. But, you know, I don't have an explanation for this because honestly saying, it looks like a big, big fault of the entire power vertical in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. It's in, and SBU is only one small element of this. So the answers can be found on the top of the government. 
And uh, I remember that famous phrase of Biden when he said on the fundraising meeting, when he said that I warned Zelensky many times that invasion is looming, but he didn't listen yeah. to me. I know that Biden can say gaffes and other stuff, but I think he, he said something that we need to, to talk about and seriously uh, analyze. So a lot of questions, not only to SBU and Bakano, but many questions to the office of the president. Including- I mean, look, you know, yeah. U- Ukrainian politics are especially filled with intrigue and uh, serious allegations or conspiracy theories about people working for different governments or different factions and camps. But you know, one of the things you we do continue to hear, in fact, an American congresswoman went to Ukraine and came back and was chided by the government because she was essentially accusing Andrei Yermak, who's kind of the gray cardinal of the Zelensky administration, of being beholden to Putin, being an agent of Russia. I mean, that's a line I had heard from many Ukrainians, uh, clearly who had knives out for Zelensky before the war. But, you know, given the way the war has gone, which largely to Ukraine's benefit, at least the expulsion of Russian forces from Kyiv and most of Kharkiv. Now we're seeing at least a kind of stabilization of the contact line in Donbass. It seems, at least on its face, difficult to make a case where the evidence is is lacking to suggest that there's, that the Ukrainian, as you say, the power vertical is just kind of Swiss cheese with double crossers and spies or, or agents or people who have loyalties to the other side. I mean, what is your read of this situation? Is Zelensky is doing a kind of house cleaning, getting rid of some of the amateurs and non-entities who've been appointed to very sensitive roles? Is there also a, an element of self-criticism that he recognizes, you know, one of the reasons he was not prepared, he didn't do enough, is that, you know, maybe he can't fully trust the people he grew up with, who he appointed to these positions. They're not professional. They're not they don't have the experience and the technical capabilities. Michael, uh, look, this letter of uh, Victoria Sparks, the U.S. Congresswoman from the Republican Party, it was a sobering moment for Ukraine. It was a kind of very surprising letter for Zelensky and for his circles. Yeah. Why it was uh, surprising? Because they were so long time aligned to the circles around the President Biden. It's Democratic Party. They have a power right now in the United States. They have a majority in the Congress, in the House. They, they have president. So. It's naturally that uh, office of Zelensky was aligned with the working with the uh, Biden administration. Yeah. And here we got this surprising letter from the uh, from Republicans. And uh, not only that accusations about the treasonous behavior of the Mr. Yermak from the office of president, Victoria Sparks, she expressed that uh, feeling that she was blocked from communication in Ukraine. She was kind of sidelined by the office of the president. And it was not politically correct for Ukraine, for Zelensky cabinet, because they should be interested in bipartisan support. Right. Key interest of Ukraine is to work with any administration because the United States is the partner. So despite any administration, any election results, they should build the right and good connections to any uh, political sources in America. So that was sobering letter. And I think this letter triggered actually this cleanup with Bakanov, with uh, chief prosecutor office. And I think we will see a lot other uh, dismissals. I think Zelensky right now is, is going to clean up many, many other key institutions from uh, people he cannot trust or people who can potentially be against him. So. I don't think that uh, he will become a dictator as a result. No, I think he's in very difficult situation. Yeah, uh, this is the key moment at the front line. Finally, Ukraine has a parity on the front line. 
receiving those weapons from the United States promised. So this is a very critical moment. He needs a very strong vertical in power and united vertical to manage the country, to lead it to, to the victory. I mean, we can we can also sort of speculate, you know, the United States, when the reporting was done on this sort of sacking of, of the SBU chief, the U.S. response was we deal with institutions, not with people. But I mean, one theory, at least one I've heard, is that possibly the Americans were telling Zelensky, listen, you know, you've got a leaky ship or you've got a problem on your hands and you don't have the, uh, the management team to deal with them effectively. Right. And I'm, because I'm the sure. United States is sharing sensitive intelligence with the Ukrainians, including allegedly, you know, the location of the Moskva, telling them when to move, when and where to move their air defense systems to avoid Russian strikes, possibly even giving them targeting packs, the location of Russian generals and flag officers. Uh, they cannot afford to have that information fall into enemy hands. I mean, this is compromising the sourcing. So, yeah, I mean, it seems that something big is afoot uh, in terms of him, as you say, kind of rehabilitating his power vertical. Um, and the timing, too, I mean, now that Ukraine is in possession of high Mars and multiple launch rocket systems, there's talk about even now things that were unheard of a few months ago, essentially giving them an F-16 program, or at least beginning to train Ukrainian pilots on F-16s and other American and even European airframes. Uh, today, I saw, you know, uh, the U.S. might offload its A-10 Warthog, you know, ground attack planes, which are kind of mothballed and obsolete here to the Ukrainian Air Force and all of these things, uh, you know, it, it stands to reason the country cannot afford to have these penetrations. It can't afford to have treason. Yes, you're right. I, yeah. I, I agree with you. You are right. But the problem of cleaning those uh, law enforcement uh, services is very difficult. Who will clean them? Uh, so and Zelensky is, of course, it's natural. He's trying. He trusts the intelligence from the West. He accepts this intelligence and those warnings from the West. But he also he, he wants to play his own role. And this is his country. He cannot blindly follow the intelligence. He needs to verify it. So and who will clean those uh, services? He needs uh, also rely on people he, he can trust. And I think we will see that he may start appointing more professionals on the key positions, but more like qualified professionals and without political ambitions. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, um, you know, one of the things that's been consistent, at least in terms of the people I've talked to and in my reporting going back now several years, is uh, Ukraine's military intelligence service, GUR, seems to be the more capable, the more professional, the least corrupt or less corrupt, certainly in comparison with the SBU. And I mean, I, a show just recorded earlier this week, Mark Palomaropoulos, who was the director of European operations at CIA several years ago, said Gur is seen as like one of the top flight military intel services in all of Europe, such that, you know, senior leadership used to visit the personal homes of CIA officers here in the United States, which is kind of unheard of in terms of partnerships. It does seem like Gur is, is sort of the driving service in waging war against Russia. I mean, they had a team that recovered all kinds of material and intelligence from Snake Island when the Ukrainians recaptured it. The current director of Gur is seen as pretty good, even by his predecessors, who tend not to be very complimentary of their successors. What can you tell us about this disparity between military intelligence and, you know, civilian, I guess, counterintelligence? I mean, the SBU is the domestic service. Reputationally, what have you experienced uh, or heard? You know, this uh, 
military intelligence is a very close society and uh, it is not accessible easily accessible as SBU. SBU is in a spotlight because it's a more public company, right? It serves public, but intelligence, military intelligence serves the military purposes. And we can only have a, this image from our impressions that they are better. I'm sure that they also have issues and problems. And, you know, eight years ago when Russia invaded first time, I didn't see that military intelligence in Ukrainian army was so successful. Only after seven years of reforms, it is kind of functional right now. Yeah. And... Uh, I would be glad if they are more successful, but I would like to remind you one interesting moment before the second invasion in the autumn of last year, this uh, grew, this military intelligence also warned Zelensky about the coming and looming invasion. Mm. And, they, and they were right. And their independent evaluations were almost similar to the U.S. evaluations with all that directions the Russia attacked. So the problem was why the office of Zelensky didn't react properly to this intelligence. That's the big, yeah. big question. Let me let me switch gears a little bit and talk about the other big sacking of Benediktova, the prosecutor general. Now, I, I've interviewed her once or twice. I've heard mixed things about her reputation. She was known for putting a lot of uh, pressure on the Kiev post to the point of almost hounding it out of existence. What, what's your read of her termination? Was it incompetence or that she was not well-liked or? For me, she was, uh, she was like a unknown person. I, I didn't hear about her as much as other people. And uh, it was uh, strange that um, Zelensky pointed her because, uh, you know, dismissal looks even more strange because, you know, I probably, I think that, you know, all that appointments Zelensky did initially after elections, they were designed for him for the peaceful life. So it was like he didn't expect the war. So that's why he selected kind of moderate person like Benediktova, because he didn't expect that she will have to investigate war crimes. She will have to investigate crimes against sexual crimes of the Russian army committed in Bucha and other locations. Those avalanche of the investigations she faced was too overwhelming for her. And that I think it was a like yeah. right decision to just remove her and let way to other people more professional to do this job. So this is just a case that she's not fit for purpose, not that she was, you know. I think, it, I think she, she was just an average person and was an average skill. And she just didn't succeed on this position in a critical moment when you need the crisis managers on this position. This is very key position. Chief ex prosecutor office, they will work directly with the International Criminal Court in the Netherlands. They will need so many work, background work, intensive work. So you need crisis manager on this position to organize all of this. Yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about the state of play right now on the battlefield. I mean, you know, I just did a piece that HIMARS, multiple launch rocket systems have have managed to do quite a lot in the few weeks that they've been in the field. And, and there's there's only we know that there are 25 platforms in total, if you count the British and the German and the American systems that are either there or on, most of them are on their way. But HIMARS have had a, a massive impact in stabilizing the contact line, according to Commander-in-Chief Zaluzhny. They seem to have spooked the Russians around the sort of southern coastline. One of the reasons they withdrew from Snake Island, even though HIMARS weren't used to bomb them in Snake Island, is that HIMARS range could make holding that, that strategic island unsustainable in the long term. And now, you know, if you listen to Defense Minister Reznikov, 
he said something like, we need 100 of these systems in order to wage counteroffensives. And the big counteroffensive clearly is going to be in Kherson, where they've been bombarding the Antonovsky Bridge uh, over the last several days, much to the chagrin of Russian occupiers and their accomplices on social media. Just now, uh, at the Aspen Security Forum, the director of MI6 said that he believes the Russian military is going to run out of steam in the next few weeks and have a, a, a significant pause, not just an operational one as in Donbass, but across all sectors of the war, which will allow the Ukrainians to press a campaign to recapture some territory. What's your assessment of the current battlescape and, and Ukraine's fortune going forward? Of course, Ukraine wants to recapture all the lost territories, and Zelensky issued the directive recently that their major goal to recapture and uh, liberate all the territories, uh, occupied territories. This is obvious. It's their goal. But the problem is uh, with the weapons and the manpower. I think that at this moment we have this kind of uh, stalemate. It may be called like operational pause, but it was the, those uh, new artillery and HIMARS uh, that the United States supplied Ukraine began uh, establishing parity on the front line. I mean, in terms of the firepower, because now Ukraine can start cutting their supply lines, uh, Russian supply lines. They can uh, paralyze their uh, command of the uh, Russian troops by bombarding the command, field command uh, posts and uh, ammunition depots. Yeah. So, this is a big addition to Ukrainian forces. The other question is, do Ukraine really needs hundreds of HIMARS? That's the big question. I, I don't know why this number is circulating in the media. I think all depends on what goal are you trying to achieve. Because if we will see that Russian army is collapsing as a domino effect in a couple of weeks, you don't need hundreds of HIMARS. You can just organize a good counteroffensive and push them out of the country. They will run out of the country. Very difficult military strategic question. What will be next and what Ukraine should do next? Because so many factors on the battlefield, so many factors in Moscow, so many factors uh, connected to morale of the Russian troops and how they will behave. Because we, we hear a lot of intercepted phone calls. We have uh, information uh, from intelligence services. They claim that Russian morale of Russian troops is downgrading, downgrading to the point that they may soon collapse. I am not sure how soon they may collapse, but some crisis will happen. Yeah. And closer to winter, because winter traditionally in Ukraine... And the Second World War, this uh, proved this, that uh, combat in winter is very harsh. And the winter in Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine, is so severe that it will paralyze any operational successes. So it is not possible to conduct successful offensive operations in the winter. And we're seeing evidence. I mean, you know, I've, I've seen reports that the Russians relied heavily on private military companies, mercenary corps such as Wagner in Donbass. Uh, they're now recruiting even lower order segments of the population. I mean, Wagner's always been chock-a-block with psychopaths and you know former criminals, but it seems now they're actually letting people out of prison and sending them to the front line. So that does seem to track with the, the bad morale or the manpower problem that the Russians are having. But on the Ukrainian side, I mean, it's difficult to, to get a read because the government Apart from the statistic that they were citing a few weeks ago, which they're no longer citing, of you know losing 100 to 200 soldiers killed in action per day, we don't really have a full clarity on Ukrainian casualties. 
I think Bill Burns, the CIA director, also at the Aspen Security Forum, suggested, you know, he's trafficking in lower order or more more conservative estimates, Russian casualties. He said there were 15,000 KIA, suggesting that, you know, possibly 40 to 45,000 casualties total. And he said that on the Ukrainian side, it's a little less, which would mean that there's rough parity in, in losses between the two sides. Now, of course, that that matters more for the Russians because they obviously don't have a country of millions of people that are taking up arms to defend themselves. And the defenders always have the kind of home court advantage. But what do you see in terms of Ukraine's morale, Ukraine's willingness to continue to press the fight and also regenerate its soldiers? Ukrainian army morale and military morale is, is still high. Mm-hmm. And I believe it will remain high because they defend their own land. But you are right. The Ukrainian government took a position of not disclosing the numbers of losses, especially uh, numbers of dead soldiers. This is justifiable. This is normal behavior of the government during the war because those numbers can affect the public opinion and uh, make everything worse. Right. We can only speculate about the numbers, but of course, Ukrainian military has those losses and they suffer from them. But I would like uh, for us to focus more on the, you know, the, the prep, uh, battle readiness of the troops. I, yeah. as I, uh, I have talks to my friends in Ukraine, to my former comrades from the military, and they disclose uh, some information for me just to, to make me feel better that Ukraine is preparing more battalions, more uh, reserve uh, forces, and they are preparing for counteroffensives to be ready when it will be the good moment. So it gives me hope. And from the other side, from the Russian side, as you mentioned, Russia uses the private companies and Russia releases the criminals and convicts from the prisons to send them to the front lines. So this all can only signify about that Russia has not so many battle-ready troops. So mm. they use only private companies with people who are ready to fight for the money, Yeah, big money. And other aspect is here that we can expect repetition and other buchas in uh, occupied regions like Kharkiv, like uh, eastern Ukraine, like Lysychansk and Severodonetsk, and especially in Kherson, we can expect massive murders committed by those criminals released from the Russian prisons. And I think the Russian government doesn't care about it. They send them and they just tell them that there are uh, fascists and you you just need to kill fascists. So they will commit those crimes. And that's the how uh, Russian government does their war. And it's also easier for the Russians. I mean, if they're relying heavily on, you know, guns for hire, those guys get taken out on the battlefield. They don't have to answer to grieving mothers in the same way they do with contract or conscript soldiers, right? I mean, yes, it's absolutely. That's a cannon fodder. Cannon fodder. Yeah. Okay, Victor, I mean, you know, you tell me, I I bring people on to educate me. What else are we, perhaps um, as a journalist in the West, I, you know, I'm always keen to know where I'm failing and what I'm not covering and paying attention to, but I should be. Uh, As a Ukrainian who, as I said before, has a close uh, observational kind of awareness of this this war, what should we be looking at in terms of um, developments? I know that Ukraine has fallen off the front pages of most newspapers. It's not the 24-7 cable news story that it was several months ago, but it's still, this is still a raging conflict and there's going to be moments of incredible escalation and then, you know, massive stories to come, I'm convinced. So what what should we be looking at? Uh, 
you know, I don't have a suggestion for the Western media right now because in comparison to eight years ago when there was first invasion, Western media uh, report about Ukraine much better, much more mm. balanced, much more truthful than before. Seven years ago, it was nightmare. You know, it was, first of all, many Western journalists treated Ukraine as a supplement to Russia. So many reported from Moscow about Ukraine. They were traveling from Moscow to report about Ukraine without that. And, you know, when you have this angle of coverage in your coverage, you all you, you will always uh, have this bias in your reporting. But now I see that Western media, despite of their political affiliations like New York Times or Wall Street Journal, they all cover balanced. And I'm surprised and I, I can only celebrate. I mean, is that a function of just having learned from mistakes of eight years ago or the natural sympathy that Americans tend to have for a, a true and proper victim? It, it is mean, both. It is yeah. both. It's uh, learning from mistakes and uh, probably kind of uh, feel of guilt for not reporting well seven years ago and sympathy as well because uh, Ukraine is a victim and it's obvious that this is the aggressive regime is trying to destroy the entire country. And I mean, Russia has become, I mean, it, it has re-totalitarianized itself, or at least Putin has. I mean, and this happened very, very quickly. I mean, the, the Z insignia, which looks like a, a swastika you know, Russia. I mean, it, it, it's it's become a forbidding landscape for Western reporters, even those who might have you know gone native and imbibed too much Russian propaganda over the years. They can't function the, the way that they could have before. So a lot of them have ended up going to Ukraine to become war correspondents, and they're they're having to file these horrible stories of atrocity and murder and rape. There's no nuance when it comes to genocide. I think that's that's gone out the uh, the window, fortunately. You know, Michael, Russia didn't change overnight in February. Well, exactly, exactly. Uh, but many the journalists, they the see that it has Russia is going in that direction. Right. But the perception of it has changed, and let's hope it changed permanently, and there's not going to be some kind of backsliding. I mean, this is kind of Putin's, this is the other war of attrition that we need to talk about, Putin's reliance on Western fatigue and uh, indifference and distractedness, right? I mean, this yeah, is what Burns also said at, at Aspen, that Putin just thinks the long game favors him because eventually we're going to want to cut a deal. We're going to want to lift sanctions. Nobody's going to want to pay several dollars more at the gas pump or have their heating bill go up in Europe, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But so far, the, the consensus, perhaps it's not a consensus, but the block seems to be holding. And, you know, today the UK announced a whole new suite of security assistance to Ukraine, a couple billion pounds worth, uh, self-propelled artillery systems, more long-range rockets, these kinds of things. So, I mean, let's see where, where it goes. But I, I don't know. I, I sort of sense a Rubicon has been crossed. So you're quite right. The, um, the almost Orientalist view of Ukraine is gone now. Nobody can can justify or defend that anymore. You know, yeah, I'm glad that uh, Western journalists don't ask uh, that crazy question: Who is Mr. Putin anymore? So, right, everyone realized who is Mr. Putin, and yeah, okay, Victor. Well, look, as always, appreciate your insights and your analysis. And um, you know, for my listeners, you can find Victor. What is your your tag on Twitter? Uh, Mr. Kovalenko, Mr. Kovalenko. Kovalenko, perfect. And I'll uh, I'll highlight that when we when we post the uh, the episode thank you uh, okay now yeah, my pleasure uh you've been listening to foreign office i'm michael weiss uh, my guest this week was victor kovalenko he's a former ukrainian journalist as well as a veteran from the ukrainian ukrainian armed services 
Michigan-based and a very keen and astute observer of the war and Ukraine's political developments. Thanks very much. We'll see you next week.